0: Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. We all struggle at times in life. And for some, it's the struggles that redefine our lives and who we are as people. Addiction is one of those struggles that has a tendency to redefine people. Usually, their stories go untold, most preferring to remain anonymous. With our country struggling to come to grips with the opioid epidemic, today there are more people in recovery that are now beginning to shed that cloak of anonymity. But few of them can put it out there as candidly, and at times as graphically, as the fixed columnist Amy Dressner. Amy wrote the book My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. Her book is a compelling read about her life as a drug and sex addict, a comedian, and her transformation to a person in long-term recovery who's helping others in their recovery. So, Amy, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me, Greg. So let's, let's start off with the beginning of your book. I mean, you don't waste any time. You get right into it. It's, it starts off with you're kind of in crisis mode with your husband. So tell us a little bit about that, the beginning. So... And what brought you to that beginning?
2: Okay, so um, I had been struggling with um, addiction on and off since I was 24. I think I was in my early 40s when that happened in 2011. And um, first of all, I like to, you got to grab your reader at the beginning. You know, you can't be, it can't be boring. You got to just grab them by the neck and just drag them on the ride with you. So um, I
1: think everybody's all in right away within the first
2: page. <laughs> that- Yeah. And that was, that was a life changing event. So I, I was married for about three and a half years. It wasn't a good marriage. We weren't well matched. Um, and we got into an altercation. It had been crumbling for a while. I had been on Oxy. I was on Oxycontin at the time for a shoulder injury that I'd started to abuse. Not surprisingly, After a couple of years sobriety, because once that stuff hits your system, if you have the biology, I mean, this vortex opens up and, you know, your dopamine centers go berserk and you just, you know, it's it's game on. And um, so at that point, you were
1: all in. So, I mean, your your addiction really was a part of this equation there. A big part. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think so. I mean, I'd like Mm -hmm. to think that I wouldn't necessarily pull a knife on someone I was married to if I wasn't high on Oxycontin. I mean, we'll never, we'll never know. I haven't done it since. I've been sober over five years and I've not, you know, I've not done it since. So that's a pretty good thing. Um, So we got in a fight. It got physical. I snapped and I pulled the knife and I just I threatened him and um, he called the cops on me and I got arrested for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon and I went to jail.
1: Wow. And that was a life changing experience. You know, why wouldn't it be? Right. But I mean that you made that a pivot point in your life. What happened from them from there?
2: So. First, you know, as uh, what addicts do once we really mess up our lives, we don't necessarily get sober right away. We tend to use and drink and feel a lot of self-pity over (laughs) the the wreckage that our using has caused. So of course I did that for a little while. I drank and then I tried to kill myself and I ended up uh, in the psych ward for the fourth time. Seems to be a hobby of mine. Yeah, really it's a lot of fun. And, um, I was left penniless in the psych ward and I went to rehab again and I was sentenced to 240 hours of community labor sweeping the streets on a chain gang and a year of domestic violence classes while going through a divorce and trying to get sober and having pretty much a nervous breakdown and, and, and going on medical disability. So I had to rebuild my life from scratch on all levels like at 43 years old.
1: Next, Amy talks about her experience with community service.
2: Community labor was totally life-changing. I mean, I went in there as this Beverly Hills princess, you know, with my nose up in the air, just like, ugh, criminals. And I turned out to have much more time, uh, you know, from the courts than anybody else. I was the only girl. I was one of the very few people there for a violent crime. Everyone else was there, you know, I make this joke, it was like, you know, it was me and like 40 Hispanic Americans and they were like, what you here for, Weta, huh? I'm here for a DUI. And I was like, um, I'm here for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon. They're like, oh my God, you know what I mean? Like when I told people how much time I was given, they were like, do you rob a bank? Like, oh my God. So that immediately was extraordinarily humbling and sort of reset the stage. Like, you're worse than these people. Like, get real, Amy. And I mean, there's nothing like sweeping the streets eight hours a day in the hot sun to give you a work ethic and humble you. And yeah, there were some real characters. They're all in the book. All that dialogue's real. Um, You know, no one talked to us. We were criminals. We had clean team uniform outfits on. People avoided us except for, like, you know, drunk homeless people who were like, good morning, but no one else talked to us except for a a few people who were like, God, I love the environmentalism you're doing. How do I become part of this? It's so wonderful. I was like, oh, it's really actually very easy. You just get arrested and (laughs) you you get to clean up the environment.
1: Along the way, Amy had an epiphany.
2: I had an epiphany during that community labor that changed my life. And that epiphany was <sighs> that this could be the best thing that ever happened to me or it could be the worst thing that ever happened to me and it was gonna be my choice. And that I was here as a result of my, all of my own actions. This was the consequence of my own actions. No one put me here, I, you know, playing the victim wasn't gonna help. And I just decided at that point to take full responsibility for my life and really look at the way that I had been behaving, which was very entitled and every I wanted everyone to fix it for me and I wanted everyone to take care of me. And, you know, you meet your destiny on the road, you go to avoid it. And here I was having to financially take care of myself. You know, no one could bail me out of this. My parents were over it. There was no more money. There was no it was it was all up to me. And I just thought. How could this be the best thing that ever happened to you and transform you into who you want to be, Amy? And I thought, well, I could get a work ethic. I could get, you know, some biceps. I could learn to sweep. I'd be a great sweeper. You know, I could get humble. And and I just thought, and I'll finish what I start. For the first time in my life, I will finish what I start. And, uh, you know, my book opens with a quote from Will Rogers, where he says, the worst thing that happens to you can be the best thing for you if you don't let it get the best of you.
1: And I love that I, quote. That, right? That, yeah, it's a great quote.
2: I was like, that's it. So I, that's what I did. I was like, this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to me, and it, and it was.
1: Next, our discussion moved along to the topic of anonymity.
2: I'm in AA. And I'm very out about that. And uh, it's breaking my anonymity, which I think, which is called the 11th tradition, which I think is completely outdated and was set up in the 30s when alcoholism was extraordinarily embarrassing. Now we have celebrity rehab and intervention and sober house. And, you know, if you say, you know, you're in recovery or you're in a 12 step group, people kind of know. And I think that the more people that come out, in being in recovery in whatever form it is, I think the better. Um, I understand the theory that if you say you're in AA and you relapse, then it makes it look like AA doesn't work. Um, to that, I say AA doesn't work for everybody, number one. Uh, it doesn't have that greatest, the greatest percentage of uh, success. Um, people, hardcore fundamentalists are like, you know, well, that's because, you know, if, if you fail in AA, it's you. You did it wrong. And I just think, again, addiction is very personal and some – not. it's not for everybody. But I also think, you know, I talk about it in the book because I want people to know it's not some weird Christian cult where it's just old men and, like, you know, in a basement drinking crappy coffee. Yeah. So I understand that time – being sober is important and should be revered and is is a goal. You want to have continuous sobriety. I get that. The problem is that there are people with twenty years sober who still aren't very nice people. You know what I mean? Um, and there are people with two years sober who are much more evolved and sort of plugged in and grounded and spiritual. So time doesn't. Uh, time is not always a tool. The other problem is. When there's a social hierarchy, there becomes judgment. So I've heard a lot of people say, I can never relapse because I'd be too embarrassed to come back. So there's this social capital, you know, and it's like, what are you embarrassed about? It's a room full of drunks. Like, who cares? Like, everyone's journey is different. Don't be embarrassed. Keep coming back. Like, and I don't like that. I don't like the fact that some people – are judged, you know, that, that, you know, if you have a lot of time, you're put up on some weird pedestal.
1: Amy talks about looking out into the crowd at a meeting and noticing a number of celebrities.
2: I showed up in a ripped t-shirt with dirty hair. I thought it was like 13 people. It's like a 300 person meeting full of rock stars. I was terrified. And I had to do like a 25 minute share. And I was just like, oh, God. And I know from you know, the fact that I'm sort of extremist and and brash, that either people are going to love me or they're going to hate me. There's not usually an in-between. They're either really on board and they're like, wow, love your honesty, you're hilarious, you're so raw, or they're like, wow, are you obnoxious and horrible and like. So when I saw these rock stars and I was speaking in the meeting and I'm speaking at a podium, you know, with a mic. And I'm just like, Oh my God. And I just, you know, thank God for my background in comedy. I just went into my store and I just thought, you know, again, I also thought who cares? They're, they're going to have another speaker next week. Who cares if I bomb, you know, and I could be thinking about that, but I, I destroyed. And one of these big famous rock stars came up to me And he just said, You're crazy beautiful. Oh my God. And he like blew me this big kiss after I spoke. And it was like, it was just kind of cool, you know? The old school thing is that, you know, if you're on certain medications, you're not sober. And I think, you know, the A is for your alcoholism. And if you have mental illness, you take it to a psychiatrist. You don't do the 12 steps for diabetes. Like, it's not Christian science, it's not Scientology. And I don't like that. And I make sure people know, like, if you have mental illness, take medication for it. You know, it's like, it's a separate issue and it makes it much harder to get sober. And unfortunately, mental illness and addiction, the comorbidity of it is so high, as you know. A lot of people are self-medicating and, you know, there's a lot of depression and bipolarity along with addiction. It's very, very, very common. And I think that we need to catch up with the fact that, you know, medication is, doesn't you know, it doesn't make you high. It makes you undepressed and normal. <laughs> That's what you're getting to. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been on six psych meds while I was smoking meth. Like, it didn't do the job. <laughs> um, I have epilepsy now, and I'm on two medications that are pretty controlled. And I did write a piece about it. And I don't know what the, com- I never read the comments, but it's like, I don't abuse that medication, I don't feel high from it, and I finally have a normal EEG. So, you know, there are times when it's okay to take potentially addictive medication if you have a life-threatening illness and you can take it correcti- correctly.
1: I found Amy's comments interesting on the brutal honesty of her book.
2: Um, I think that the brutal honesty of the book, you know, really putting myself out there and being honest to a point of, almost embarrassment Uh, people have written to me and told me that they feel less broken they feel less ashamed I've given them hope hey I'm going in a treatment you gave me hope Um, wow you know uh, I I finally have the you gave me enough the willingness to to save my own life I mean that like really heavy stuff that I was just crying and I mean yes I wrote the book to help people but I never thought it would It would do what it's doing, and um, I've written back to everyone, and I feel just—I mean—I feel extraordinarily blessed that I could take 20 years of struggle and pain and degradation into a tool of hope for other people. How cool is that? While making them laugh,
1: we talk next about political correctness and the vocabulary of addiction.
2: Substance use disorder. I mean. Okay, when I first went to treatment 20 years ago, that wasn't even something that existed. You know, I was drug dependent or drug, you know, drug addiction. Um, Yeah, there's a big push in the recovery advocacy movement to sort of destigmatize the word and use something that sounds very medical. And I understand that for legal situations and I understand that for insurance purposes and uh, But I also think that sometimes it's dishonest. I think that um, for me, owning the words takes out the shame. I own the words. And there was something about it. My book is not PC. I'm not PC. As an ex-comic and a writer, I don't like to be told what words I can use. I certainly don't like other, you know, uh, people in recovery policing me on what type of words I can use. Um, you know, My Fair Junkie was a play on My Fair Lady, which is a Pygmalion story, which is a story about transformation. My Fair Girl with Substance Use Disorder wouldn't have been that great of a title. <laughs> you know what I mean? A little um, bit long. <laughs> a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. That was, you know, a, a concept that I came up with 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 my publishers and it's a play on getting dirty, like all that really kind of gnarly sex I had with people in my car, and also sweeping the streets. I mean, I would come home and literally soot would just pour, be pouring off me in the shower. So, um, I'm not one for. I'm pretty blunt. I can be pretty irreverent. Uh, I think. As you know, gay people have taken back you know certain words, and the black community have taken back certain words. There is a, a feeling of empowerment when you take back words and use them for yourself. Uh, that 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 have been used to denigrate you in the past, and you own it. So- and that's I'm not saying people that are, have not had addiction. You know, telling me, oh, you're a junkie or you were a junkie like that. I, I don't think I'd be that thrilled with. So I understand also change the vernacular is trying to change the stigma. I don't think that's going to be sufficient. I just don't. I think that we've changed. You know, AIDS had a very, very uh, medical sounding name. Right. But people were still totally freaked out by it. And people with AIDS were still stigmatized until what? Until AIDS awareness, an AIDS walk, an AIDS ride, and until there became a cocktail where it wasn't a death sentence anymore. So I think that the language is, you know, it's a it's a great idea. I don't think it's going to be sufficient. I think that what's what's going to work is more people coming out with their stories and more people coming out in recovery and giving people hope that there's that there is an end and that you can come out of this and it's not a lethal you know, life-ending thing. So let's Substance use disorder sounds like a medical, like there's a medical answer. And when you go to treatment, and I've been in treatment six times, you know, there's not a lot of medical stuff going on there.
1: Amy talks about her reader's reaction to My Fair Junkie.
2: They're like, thank you for making me feel less ashamed and less broken and less alone. And I love your honesty. And I love, you know, so that hasn't been you know, and I think that we all get to describe ourselves in whatever way we want. Free, there's freedom of speech. You know, um, I think if you read the book, it's obvious. I take addiction extremely seriously. Uh, I have an enormous biological base for it in my family, genetically. Um, I don't think it's a moral issue. So, you know, of course, some of my stuff is about shock value. But again, this was, you know, something that I decided with the publisher and. Um, yeah, I just I don't think changing the I, I, I don't I the la, I, I wrote the book to show people that people like me. Like they think, oh, that kind of stuff could never happen to a Beverly Hills Jap, you know, getting arrested for felony domestic violence, going to the psych ward, you know, becoming an IV drug user, all that kind of stuff. That stuff happens to everyone. So my book is about breaking shame and breaking stigma. If you're going to get caught up in the title and judge a book by its cover, I don't know what to say. Read the book. I
1: asked Amy if growing up in a privileged family had changed people's view of her story.
2: I would say addiction is an equal opportunity disease. I would say that I think that although my parents probably meant well, that by throwing me into treatment over and over and over again and paying for psychiatrists and therapists and weird alternative methods to beat addiction, that they prolonged me hitting a much necessary bottom where I realized it was my problem to fix. Um, I also think that when you grow up with money, that there is a type of, when everything's given to you and you don't have to do anything for yourself, you don't develop self-esteem. You're entitled and it's sort of this empty entitlement, but you also feel You haven't done anything for yourself. So I didn't really have any self-esteem because I had never accomplished anything. And so you get crippled because you've never done anything for yourself. And then you think that you can't. And then you don't. Um, And when I was in some of the more expensive rehabs, it's the millionaire's kids that die because there's no bottom. You know, they can afford an expensive lawyer to make that charge go away and just throw the kid back in a detox and keep that kid in that condo. And you know what I mean? And not necessarily that every bottom makes people wake up and go, ho. you know, but I've seen a lot of very kids of much wealthier means than me die because there was just no bottom. Amy
1: talks about how she finally found recovery.
2: I lost everything. I mean, I I had been sober. I've had periods of sobriety, and then I've relapsed. I've had seven years without 12-step program. I've had three and a half years. I now have a little over five years. I've had a year and a half. I've had many periods of sobriety. I've been in six different treatment centers. And, um this sobriety feels different because I built it myself and I lost everything and I built a life worth living. And I also dealt with some of the core issues that were keeping me using, which were my immaturity and not wanting to grow up and not wanting to take consequences and not wanting to feel my feelings. As my dad says, welcome to the real world rookie. You know, now my mother is in an assisted living with, you know, the beginnings of dementia in a wheelchair and guess who's her power of attorney and has to control everything, me. So everything I've avoided where I'm like, I don't want to do taxes and money and budgeting. It's like now, I, now I've, now you know, I've again, I've met my destiny on the road I went to avoid it. You know, for me, a big part of, of recovery was growing up. Commitments, not doing what I felt like, acting myself into right thinking, cognitive behavioral therapy, sticking to my word, uh, routine, you know, stability, all the things I hated, all the things I could avoid when I had a trust fund. I didn't have a job. I didn't have to do anything. But when you are on medical disability and if you don't write a certain amount of articles or babysit a certain amount of hours, you know, you're not going to make your rent. You're screwed. And it's like, you know, my father says in the book, and it's become a quote that people have made a meme on, on Instagram, which is just so surreal when people are making memes of things you say. It's so weird. <laughs> um, my father said to me probably 20 years ago, discipline creates stability. Stability does not create discipline. And I didn't really get it. And now and I finally got it. It's that routine. It's that disciplined life that creates a feeling of stability inside. If you're waiting to feel stable before you write or go to your job or get sober or go to the gym, you're waiting forever. It's in the doing that you become ready. You're never going to feel ready. Do you think I felt ready to write a book? Absolutely not. I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first book. It was like, walking in the dark with a pen light, you know, I was like, ah, where am I going? You know, I had written editorial. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, but that's how, that's everything.
1: Next, Amy talks about what she hopes people take away from My Fair Junkie.
2: And I think the other thing I'd like people to take away from the book is like, To also keep a sense of humor. I mean, addiction is serious, absolutely, and I've almost died from it many, many times, and I've had grand mal epilepsy now because of it, and I've tried to kill myself four times with box cutters and slitting my wrists and pills and all that kind of stuff, but it's like, you know, what helped me get through it was not taking myself so seriously and having some hope and pulling myself back out of the story and seeing it as a story so that I could get through it you know, and realizing that the way you feel now is not the way you're going to feel forever. And I mean, if I can recover, anybody can recover for real. Parting
1: thoughts for the listeners, Amy?
2: Took me a long time to realize that if I had an urge, if I could just buy myself 20 minutes, that urge would pass, whether I picked up or not. But if I picked up, then I started on that whole roller coaster again. And there have been times in this in this five years where I've wanted to pick up, where I've been like, I don't, I I want I want to check out. I don't want this, you know. And I haven't. So you can stay sober even if you have moments, you know. Your your thoughts are not your actions. You can have a thought to use and still not use. I'm not like, woohoo, you know. Like, I love, you know. I mean, I do love being sober because there's so much less drama. But I'm not going to say there aren't moments where I'm just like, oh. Especially the stuff with my mother has been really heavy. And so my old brain goes, hey, let's kill ourselves. Hey, let's put a needle in our neck. Let's get out. Let's get out. I don't want this. If you if you screw up again, then all the responsibility is off you. But those days are over. I'm too old for that now. And it's like the feelings pass and you adjust. It's hard because it's new. That's it. It's like the gym. It's hard because it's new. And then you get it. And once you get it, it's much easier. You know? Staying sober is so much easier than get, getting sober, unfortunately.
1: We've been joined today by Amy Dressner. Amy is a former stand-up comic who appeared at the Comedy Store, The Laugh Factory, and the Improv. Amy is also a columnist for the addiction magazine, The Fix. Additionally, Amy's written a number of works, as well as the book that we've been talking about today, My Fair Junkie a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean, a compelling read that's awfully entertaining. My name's Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit Cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.